Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Premier Chelsea, your source for all things Premier League, but starting with Chelsea first. Coming into you on your speakers and headsets, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jackie from Houston, I have Rahul here from Connecticut, and I have Alex from Maine. Guys, it feels good to be back. I've been out of touch for a few days here. Good to have you back on. Um, you've certainly missed an eventful few days in the football world. <laughs> I, I really have. And I'm glad that you guys covered and really put together some great content for our listeners out there. A lot of drama about Jose Mourinho leaving the Super League, and it's still not over. So we have a lot to cover today. Let's jump right into it. Rahul, do you have some information on the Super League for us? Yes, I do. The Super League has been suspended. So uh, Alex and I spent an hour the other day talking about it, and now it's gone. Yeah, brilliant. 48-hour turnover. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> Alex? Yeah, I thought that was quite something to see. And I was certainly, I was taking full advantage of the fact that Chelsea were positioned as, I, I mean, it's a little bit of an overstatement to call us the saviors, but certainly, certainly uh, leading the tide against it. I think that was impressive. Um, there were videos I put out several, you can see on my account, Pulisic FC 22, if you haven't, of the Chelsea fans physically blocking the team bus, um, chanting songs, not allowing uh, the players to come in. And that's when Petr Cech stepped out and said, we're working on it. Please let the bus through. We're working on it. And then everyone was cheering. It was announced Chelsea were out. And here we are. Perez has blown his his 12-0 lead in the Super League, and they're dropping like flies. You know, that's one thing that's lovely about being out of touch with football or with some things that are going on around the world for a few days is you guys keep me constantly updated. So those videos you were sharing on both accounts, the information about Petacek and that video that came out honestly was brilliant. I was getting a lot of joy just getting in touch with what was going on through you guys. So I really appreciate it. Now, Rol, do you have anything to say about Petr Cech? I know you had some big things to say about how he saved football and not just Chelsea. I do. And I'm going to go as far as saying Petr Cech and Chelsea saved the football world uh, from the doom and gloom of the Super League. Um, and actually put out that video of him pulling off that save against Hernandez uh, in in a FA Cup tie. And that's basically what happened. The Super League was headed towards the goal and Petr Cech came through and blocked it off. So uh, an excellent decision from, from Chelsea and all the other clubs, jokes aside. And it was one that was in the making in that 48 hours after the announcement on Sunday, you could tell that fans, managers, players, other teams that were not in the Super League uh, stood up and rose their voice and they rose it so high that it was it led to the cancellation and suspension of the Super League. So uh, kudos to everyone involved. I'm not going to say Chelsea alone, everyone involved. And uh, this is with the power of the fans, which has brought us to um, this good news that, you know, there's no more Super League. Right. A lot to cover and talk about over there. I mean, I'm going to start quickly with the Premier League captains first. I know that they organized a get-together so they could discuss what their thoughts, feelings about the Super League was. And, and I'm sure that a lot of it came out saying we need to stop this because a lot of the messages on Instagram from the players themselves, whether they were cryptic or pretty straightforward, really had to go to how this is changing football. Football can, cannot be bought. In fact, I think uh, Bruno Fernandes brought something about like he grew up trying to play the Champions League and win the Champions League. So that was a big one. I, I don't know if you guys saw anything and what your thoughts on that was. Yeah, I saw, I think it was Fernandez who said, I think he said dreams cannot be bought was, was one of his key quotes. And it was seriously something seeing the, the biggest names, really a lot of, obviously, I think a lot of present players were under a bit of pressure or at least not wanting to uh, come out and say anything too rash before things were decided. And I don't blame them for that. I think it was as soon as the outrage uh, broke I think it was pretty clear that we just had to wait because um, things were going to shake out how they were going to shake out. And we saw the league got canceled. So that's when I think the the pundits, certainly Neville and Carragher, uh, they were outspoken on this issue. They stepped in um, and a lot of ex-players, past legends, um, some of the big, big, big names in the footballing world stepped in and, and sort of reiterated um, their love for the game. And I, I, I do think it was interesting too that I wouldn't call it a counter movement because I think very 
the vast majority of people were against the Super League. But there was an acknowledgement that UEFA and FIFA are by no means uh, angels themselves. Certainly the situation painted them quite well, but there were there were among those big names calling out the Super League, some people saying, let's not stop here. Let's consider how we need to keep re uh, keep working and keep making progress to address this issue going forward. That's a great point. And I think that's a good topic for discussion with regards to UEFA are not off the hook here. And I think we need to talk a little bit more about that. But before we go forward there, there's a lot of fun posters, maybe fun is not the right word, but meaningful posters and messages about football was started by the poor and stolen by the rich. And leading into that, I think the fans, and I'm not calling any fan poor by any means, but I mean the masses, the normal people, those of us that watch and support football, which really there's millions and millions and millions of dollars and pounds and all sorts of money going into football, were the ones that rallied, stepped up and said, we don't want the Super League. And I think a good point, Rahul, I'll bring you in here, is that it happened for the most part very very peacefully, just more chanting, raising their voices, saying that they want change. Chelsea, for example, outside the team bus, but nobody was hurt, nobody was injured for the most part. Absolutely, and that was the the good thing to see was uh, sometimes these protests lead to violence and damage that happens around the grounds um, or outside the grounds in this case. And none of that was seen. Yes, there was colorful language used um, in terms of Perez and the Super League, but that was the extent of, of um, it. And throughout it, everyone was just having a good time while raising their voices and showing that we're coming together. Forget rivalries, forget uh, everything that you know we banter each other for as clubs. Uh, this is about the game. This is about what we see as the future of the game. And that was good for me to see because... Um, the first day on Monday, we saw Liverpool fans do it. Leeds fans did it too a little bit. And then Chelsea fans came together. And yes, it felt through after all everything that was going on outside the bridge. But it was an effort and everything that happened over the course of the two days between fans, like Alex mentioned, pundits. Um, and yes, we didn't see a lot from the other leagues. But on Twitter, on Instagram, there was a lot of support for the Super League to be cancelled. And that's exactly what happened. Now, I know there's been uh, interviews done by Perez who says, yes, this project is over in terms of the Super League, but we will be back with something else. And that's something we've got to realize that we may have won right now, but these clubs, these owners that ultimately want to make money will find a different way of doing it. Yeah, that's a good point. I think maybe I personally saw that Perez quote of, of, Oh, this is this is on hold, but we will find a way to to get these reforms through. Um, I forget actually. I'll 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 look for it right now. But I certainly we do have to be careful. We have to be vigilant. The whole Super League thing came out of nowhere. He said, "Yeah." He said, um, "If this project didn't work, another one will." Remember, all the twelve clubs have signed a binding contract. Um, which I personally took to be a bit of an empty threat. I think he's sort of throwing a tantrum because his pet project of a decade fell apart um, in two days because uh, he didn't even stop to consider the PR. Um, but I think personally, uh, we he's talking about a binding contract. A lot of these clubs were violating domestic contracts and contracts with the English Football Association and with UEFA and FIFA um, and individual contracts with their players simply by joining this Super League. So I, I'm not entirely sure um, there's too much substance to that idea of these clubs being bound into starting a new competition like this or reforming the Super League idea. Um, I'm, I'm sure for as long as he lives, uh, Perez will be scheming and trying to find a way to get his club out of debt. But that was that was another good thing. I think it was I think it was you, Rahul, you posted, I believe, on the Premier Chelsea Instagram, that graphic of the debt owed by all the clubs in the Super League, which was there you go. It was quite telling. If you want to explain that, perhaps. Yeah, I was, I was actually going to bring that up. So thank you for, for giving me that um, introduction. So it was a, a, a report done by KPMG that shows the net financial debt for the leading clubs in Europe. And um, Tottenham had about 685 million euros of debt. Now, obviously, you've got to realize that they just built a new stadium and most of that debt comes from there. 
but that's a lot of money to be in the red. Um, and it takes a lot of time for them to make that up, especially if they're not going into the Champions League. They're not finishing higher up in the Premier League. Um, Manchester United similarly have 524 million. So again, this is this is debt. And these owners are trying to get rid of it so that their clubs become more valuable. And if they want to sell it, they make more money doing it too. So um, that's kind of the, the driver and motivation for this Super League. And like you said, maybe it's not a Super League, but there is going to be some way for these clubs to say, we've been hurting for the last year from COVID, no revenue from fans coming into the stadium. We have to find a way to make that up. And it is going to happen. We just don't know how, uh, but they will find a way to make it up. And at the end of the day, it'll be the fans that pay for it. Yeah, so I want to stick on that graphic a little bit. For anybody who has not seen it, please go take a look at the Premier Chelsea Instagram. It actually is very informative to show you or maybe allude to why certain clubs are motivated towards going to a form of the Super League where there's a good payout to help with things like that. But Alex, you were on Instagram online talking about Chelsea did not need to join the Super League because from a financial standpoint, I think Chelsea have handled their business and their club very well. We seem to be one of the few in the green, especially given that COVID had hit and everything going on. But yet Chelsea still joined or still signed on to be part of the Super League. What do you think were some of the motivating factors to do that? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. We definitely financially did not need the Super League, as in we were not in a bad position to begin with. And I think what everyone was saying is the chief motivator was a fear of being left behind. Obviously, if people are talking about 3.5 billion pound bonuses um, just for joining a league, or they're talking about um, doubling, tripling, quadrupling Champions League revenue, guaranteeing entry. I mean, this is something that certainly, if you forget all the negatives associated with it, sounds extraordinarily positive for a big club. And I think, Jackie, you were saying when you when you hadn't been in touch with the media or the news or the the coverage or the details of the Super League on the surface it doesn't sound like a horrible idea at least not as um say an owner of one of these 12 clubs it sounds like a genius idea but you know i think that's where you have to just you have to just step back and and slow down and and question is this really going to help in the way that we think it's going to help and you have to ask what your obligation is to other clubs and to the to the football associations uh, that you're playing in to the premier league in the um chelsea example um so i will say i mean abramovich obviously and chelsea took some flack for joining in the first place which is deserved to some degree um but i personally don't think that should be held against um i mean god i'm i'm so biased but I don't think that can be held too deeply against Chelsea if we're going off the reports that Chelsea was told of the league a week beforehand. Um, I, I mean, rationally, that's what I would do if I'm in a position where I'm told there's this crazy financial opportunity. Are you in or out? If you're out, you're going to be missing out and we're all going to completely surpass you. Um, and they'll probably punish you if that does, format does end up going forward. It seems like a logical decision to, to not want to get left behind. But then very quickly, when he saw the PR, it was reported that Abramovich personally was seriously disturbed by the negative image that it was bringing to Chelsea, the discontent of the fans. And I think he absolutely made the right choice in the end. So that's what I'd like to focus on. Yeah, so just a couple of interesting things that I read, and Rahul, I'll bring you into this discussion as well here, was Chelsea doesn't need the money per the diagram itself, and we know financially they're pretty stable, but they did want to follow some of these so-called super clubs because there is an image with Chelsea now going forward. We are one of the top clubs in the world, so playing in that league with other top clubs is good for our image, but also a lot of things I heard coming out on the internet was if you play in a weakened Premier League, we lose stock value as well because it then becomes a lot easier for a club like Chelsea to just win it every season. You're also not going to attract the big names coming over and, and to the Premier League anymore. So that was an interesting one. But Rahul, I heard another one, and maybe you know some information about this, is the Chelsea pitch owners technically on paper own Stamford Bridge. There's a lot of things that go around who can play there, how they can play there. And in fact, what I heard was not only do they own Stamford Bridge, they also own the name Chelsea Football Club. And based on those two things, 
Chelsea cannot just go out and join the Super League without the permission of this club unless they change their name or play at a different stadium. So I don't know how true all of this stuff is, but it seems to weigh in on a lot of factors on, like Alex touched on, the, the PR around this situation. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. And before I get into the, the pitch owner's um, point, just to go back to what Alex was saying. So uh, on the list of the top 20 richest clubs in the world, Chelsea sit eighth. And out of that, the clubs that sit ahead of them, five of them were already in the Super League and the rest sit below Chelsea, but they're also joining the Super League. So for Chelsea as a club, the motivation was we don't want to be left behind, like Alex said, because the likes of Tottenham, Juventus, Arsenal, Atletico Madrid, who sit behind Chelsea, would be gaining 3.5 billion pounds or euros and moving ahead of Chelsea in terms of getting revenue, getting players. And I think that was the fear and motivation that led to saying, yes, let's go join them so we don't fall behind some of these other guys. Uh, coming to the pitch owner's point, you're absolutely right. The Stanford Bri- Bri- uh, Bridge pitch and the name Chelsea FC are owned by the Chelsea Pitch Owners Group. In fact, I own a share in that portion of it. Um, so if they had come to me and asked for my opinion, um, I most likely would have said no. Unless 3.5 billion, maybe. <laughs> unless there was some monetary uh, motivation. But jokes aside, yes. Yeah, so without getting the input and buy-in from the CPO, which is the Chelsea pitch owners, Chelsea could not have played Super League games at Stamford Bridge and couldn't have played at another stadium under the name Chelsea FC, like you said. So, And that's the, the baffling part of it is they knew all of this, yet they went ahead and signed that deal thinking everyone would just go, oh, we're going to get so much money and we're going to be, you know, competing with the likes of Barcelona and Real Madrid on a, on a weekly basis, which is not what the fans want. We've seen us play Barcelona. We've seen us play Real Madrid. Yes, we haven't played them in a while, but i rather us play our Premier League games and then have that excitement to say in a couple of weeks, we will be playing Real Madrid for the first time since 98. And I think that's the motivation and driver behind the fans saying, no, we don't want the Super League. We want to play in the Premier League and have that excitement that comes with top four race, top four finish, title race, and the excitement of what, like I said, Barcelona and Real Madrid on in a semifinal. You got to give me my rainy Wednesday night in Stoke. That's what we want to see every now and then is my rainy Wednesday night in Stoke. But Alex, one of the things you talked about early, and I said we would come back to it, is UEFA are not necessarily off the hook here. There was some rumors going around that as soon as all of this settled, more money was influxed into the competition. In fact, there were rumors of several billion that kind of appeared out of nowhere. So there is money to be made. There is a lot of money that comes out of these games, TV revenue, matches, of course, fans 100% going into stadiums. Um, Thoughts on what they're doing and and how they're handling this situation? Yeah, I think it's clear that, I mean, no, no, for a very long time, the chief bad guys in the, the footballing world have been the presidents and the boards of the, these associations. Certainly there were, there were all the FIFA scandals that are still ongoing. I mean, there's the outrage over the World Cup being held in Qatar. Um, there's the, the, there's corruption uh, stories breaking out every week. About, about some new uh, scandal and, and someone else who's been caught embezzling money or something. It's, it's a messy, messy, messy world at this top elite level. Um, and it reminds you that the beautiful game, the supporters may at this point still retain ownership as has been seen of this game, but it is um, to a lot of people, a very, very business-like proposition. It is a business to so many people, which, um, you know, there's, there are there are pluses and minuses to it. I I do think it's it's good that this sort of revenue comes in. And as you said, the the Champions League, they're clearly making money. Supposedly they were able to give give some kind of uh, stimulus, so to speak, to these clubs who were breaking away from the Super League as a little uh, thank you for for coming back. But I don't know. I think I think it's it's good to see that money can be made because we do forget that all these beautiful big name signings that we love coming to the bridge, for example, 
um, all the, the 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 stuff like even the plans, the the delayed plans to renovate Stamford Bridge, as we've said with Spurs new stadium, they're hundreds and hundreds of millions in debt. Um, these new stadiums, these top of the line facilities, these superstar players. I mean, we wouldn't even have a. I, I'm I'm not convinced at this point we're signing Holland, but we wouldn't even be in the conversation if not for the big money and the prestige that this Champions League tournament brings in. So it's it's tough there's a line to walk here because there is a lot of corruption going on with uefa and fifa and the like but as you've said uh, as both of you guys have said we we love watching these games yeah and it reminds me of those evenings rahul as kids we would want to get, get together and watch these big nights and these big games not just because it's champions league but like both of you have alluded to and touched on these formats and these championships have gone back several 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 years in history and there's a lot of love associated with it Chelsea chased it for many, many years. So to just dump it would be kind of interesting. So I'm glad it's changing. But sticking on the topic of the Champions League, they have now come out and talked about reforming the Champions League. And to be perfectly honest with both of you gentlemen, I don't know exactly what the reform is, but Rahul, maybe you can shed some light on what they're planning on doing. Yeah, I'll try my best. It actually came out on Monday and they've been talking about doing this for a few years now. So uh, starting in 2024, UEFA has decided that they'll be switching to a 36-team Champions League for a tournament, and which that will also include a single league format type of, um, you know, kickoff to the tournament and replacing the group stages. So instead of having these eight groups that we have, we'll now have one league, which will include all 36 teams, um, increasing it from 32 teams. So four more teams coming in um, to the Champions League. And then what will happen is each team is guaranteed to play 10 games, five at home and five away, rather than the six that we used to play uh, with home and away fixtures. So it's a little confusing in that the 10 games that you play, five would be at home determined by, I guess, seating and, and um, other factors. And then five would be away. So you could play Real Madrid at the Bernabeu and then not play them at home at all. And you could play Dortmund at the bridge and not play them in Germany at all. So that's a little confusing, uh, but that's the proposal. The top eight sides in the league qualify for the knockout stage, which remains the same. So you have the round of 16, the quarterfinals, the semifinals, and the final, which all stay the way they are. And then teams between ninth and 24 plays go into a two-legged playoff to secure their path to the last 16. Um, and then anyone finishing between 24 and 36 is just eliminated from the Champions League. So I'm not sure the need for this, um, but what it does do is that it allows qualification for um, teams and leagues that were otherwise not getting directly into the Champions League. And so what I mean by that is uh, if you were a champion of one of the lower seeded leagues, you still had to go into a qualification before you made it into the group stage. This would change that. You would automatically qualify for the league or group stage, as they call it, which is good in terms of the leagues that don't get the exposure and don't get, um, you know, the, the chance to directly come into the champions league. But I think Krasnodar was as one such example who finished top of the Russian league, but then still had to qualify for the champions league. So it helps those teams and it's good for them, but it's confusing. And hopefully they'll have more information and, and explanation on to how everything will pan out in 2024. Yeah, that's going to be very interesting. And I think they do something similar with the South American World Cup qualifiers, where it's more of a, a big table and they kind of play each other. But I think there's also something to be said about more games. When you have that many more games, there's obviously more money coming in through te television revenue, which might help with some of the things people are talking about with regards to where's the money going to come from to kind of support some of these things. But Again, several years away, there's definitely room for them to kind of refine this and make sure it makes sense and potentially have some of these teams that are going to participate sign off on the format to make sure that everybody's all on board and participating the way they need to. Alex, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I, I was just I was just sort of looking actually um, at one of the points where Hull was making about those extra spots. Um, and it's uh, obviously, I, I well, not obviously, I'd, I'd heard some rumors perhaps in the background that, that it would allow larger clubs who maybe didn't earn it on merit to still get in. Um, and I'm seeing here under the details, the idea of um, two places going to clubs with high club coefficients over the last five years. Um, and I was, I was wondering, I don't know if either of you know exactly what that means, the club coefficient, how that's calculated. It did make me think, uh, I'm, I may be dreaming about this. I'm not sure where this is coming from, but I swear I thought someone had told me at some point that there was a league out there somewhere, a sports league. I don't even know if it's uh, football, but a league where teams go um, or teams are ranked or they go up or down based on their average points or performance over five years or something of that nature. I might be making this up, but I, I do think that's an interesting way to do it of showing that, um, you know, consistency is rewarded and it's easy to say, Oh, this is just a, a backdoor for say the Spurs and the arsenals and these big clubs to, to sneak their way in. But if you look at it, for example, the Lester's of the premier league right now, who are slowly making their way up, I could see this being something that ends up rewarding other clubs as well. Um, if, for example, uh, a Leicester City type is not quite making as much money as these top big six sides, but they can consistently come in fifth place in the Premier League for a couple years in a row. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Would this not give them a chance of getting in? Yeah, and that's kind of what they're alluding to here. And it's not just for Leicester. It's how you perform across Europe and compared to how some of the other teams do. So you're looking at a Villarreal or a Valencia who have not always been there in the top three of the Spanish league in recent history, but they're in and around that. You're looking at a West Ham, you're looking at a Leicester. If they can keep that consistency and continue to perform, they get that opportunity. And, and honestly, the World Cup does this. That's how they come up with the uh, men's world rankings. For example, Belgium is right at the top number one right now. They haven't won a cup but they're the top because they're consistently winning games, scoring goals and different things like that. And, and it gives them credit to keep performing at a high level. Yeah. To add some color to this, um, UEFA's club coefficient is generated by the performance of a club in the past five years, either in the champions league or the Europa league. And they award you points for each uh, round. So in the UEFA champions league, you get four points for being in the group stage and then two points on um, for a win in the group stage, a draw gets you one point. And then for round of 16 participation, you get four points. Um, so just based off of that, looking at the most recent coefficient, I'll just give you the top team right here is Bayern Munich, which makes sense because they are the most recent winners and have consistently performed well in the Champions League. Our club, Chelsea, sit in 12th. Um, meaning they did qualify in 16-17, so that is hurting us right now. Uh, but we did do well in the Europa League in 19-20 or 18-19, I beg your pardon. So that's bumping us up. But we do sit below Arsenal, guys. Uh, so if in, in any case in the future, if we were uh, not in the top four and didn't win the Europa League and it came down to us or Arsenal making it into the Champions League, Arsenal would get that. So we'll that's kind of how this, yeah, we'll wait and see for after this season. Then we'll see where Arsenal rank. Yeah. But that's kind of how they would determine uh, those two final spots that Alex brings up. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I guess that does, I, I, I at first was going to say, well, okay, then you're drawing on clubs who are already in these top competitions. But um, I mean, thinking about it as, as you were saying, the Europa league, obviously that's, that's who's qualifying from those tiers just underneath the, um, elite, consistent top finishers in every league. Um, so that is probably the route to success for a club like West Ham, Leicester in the Premier League, or as you were saying, a Valencia via Real type. Um, so I don't know. I think there is something to be said for, for maintaining our skepticism. Uh, a lot of people were saying UEFA simply uh, spoke out against the Super League, blasted it, shut it down, came out harder than they'd ever come down on any issue. Uh, social issues included. Um, there was some criticism for that. And then they go out and propose essentially a super league, but we get the revenue. Um, so I, I, I think there's some, 
there's some credibility to criticizing them there, but I do think it's good that it's at least being floated, first of all, as a future change. I think it what comes into effect in 2024. Right. Um, I think that that gives it a bit more credibility than the, oh yeah, by the way, uh, good luck this August, we're starting a new tournament and uh, screw the rest of the league. Yeah, that's definitely for sure. And I mean, we've we've talked about Super League now. This is going into probably another half of a second episode. So maybe it's time we start to maybe rally on to another game that we did have. And that was against Brighton. So in the mix of all this, we have to play a game. And again, like I said, I was out of touch. And both of you guys were messaging back and forth and said, do we have a game today? And yes, gentlemen, we had a game that day. So Rahul, why don't you take us through the starting lineup that was selected for Brighton? I'd rather talk about the Super League because this game was dead. <laughs> we could come back to that. We got to cover the game. <laughs> no, I'm joking. So, yes, we did play Brighton. Yes, we did have the opportunity to go third by getting a win. Uh, but given that everything, given everything that had gone on and the distractions that the players had on their minds and the crowds outside before the game and everything that was going on with the Super League, I think impacted the performance. And so the team that started, Kepa started a second game. And I think, I don't think that's anything to do against Mendy. I just think Kepa was rewarded. And Jackie and Alex, I'll get your feedback on that. Uh, Christensen came in for Aspilicueta. I think that was the first time Aspilicueta has missed a Premier League game under uh, Tuchel. So that was interesting. Zuma and Rudiger completed the defense. Reese James, Jorginho, and Mason Mount in midfield next to Jorginho, Alonso. Hakeem Ziyech, Kai Havertz, and Christian Pulisic started, uh, made the starting 11. Yeah, that was, I mean, just to touch on a couple of those decisions, um, yeah, I'll, I'll rapid fire through my thoughts on some of those. I think the Kepa one, I was, I was pleased to see him start because we all love Mendy. He's been doing extremely well. He's got a great save percentage. He's got a great clean sheet percentage. Um, he went from a name that very few Chelsea fans had heard of to a fan favorite um, in a very short period of time. But I will say, I still, I still feel for Kepa for some of the, the abuse he received, for some of his own uh, self-doubt and some of his own mistakes that you knew he was capable of better. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to see that he, he's getting a shot. I think he's got now five under, is it either, either under Tuchel or, or this year he's he's got I think his last five games are clean sheets is the point so that's that's what a top club needs a top club needs competition um keep Mendy on his toes we love the guy he's great I still think he should be our number one but there's no reason Mendy should be getting complacent because we've got a 70 something million pound goalkeeper who's just itching to to prove that uh he's not a flop um, so I, I liked that and maybe one other, other key point from the game that I, I took away was Rudiger. Um, I saw a tactical analysis saying that, um, he was a little more involved in the buildup in this game than he has been in the past. And from what I saw that appeared to be true on multiple occasions, I was surprised to see him making serious darting runs down the left. Um, I, it was, it was the type of run that you come to expect maybe from Chilwell, uh, because Chilwell obviously, frankly, has a little more finesse on the ball, let's just say, than, than, than Rudiger at full speed. But, um, you know, it was good to see him pushing up. I did like that as an alternative to some of the boring back and side passing. But realistically, it's not, you, you don't want your attack to be carried by no disrespect to him, great defender, but you don't want your attack being carried by a Tony Rudiger running 45 yards with the ball straight at the uh, Brighton defense. Yeah, and that might just be because of the nature of the game and maybe we're not creating, you know, anything up front and Rudiger thought, Hey, maybe I can chip in and help, but I don't want to circle back to, to Kepa. I wasn't, I don't have any doubts over Kepa long-term. I think there is a good keeper in there somewhere. And like you touched on Alex, five games he's played re in, in recent times and had a clean sheet. I think, where it seems interesting is Kepa seems to be our, our cup keeper. And I was ecstatic for him to go into the semifinals and actually get us to the finals with a clean sheet. But then he gets back-to-back -back games in, in the Premier League. And I'm, I'm almost wondering what the reason for that is. Did, did something happen to Mendy 
Was it an injury? Did they see something that he's not performing well? Is this the change of a new number one? If it is, sure. There's nothing wrong with having Kepa as a new number one. I'm just wondering what happened. With, with Kepa, we knew something went wrong. Something wasn't going right and we needed number one. With Mendy, nothing has really gone wrong other than a couple of incidents that both of you guys have highlighted. Maybe he's not as good with his feet. He's more of a shot stopper. Maybe Tuchel's looking for somebody who's better with their feet. I'm going to watch this one a little closely because it's an interesting one. But the Rudiger thing, that was that was insane to see him make those darting runs. It wasn't just today in previous matches as well. But the one I did want to talk about is actually Mason Mount. And I think we talk about Mason Mount quite a bit. But we are struggling for players, fit players, in the middle of the park. And Mason seems to be a versatile player. He's played inner left wing for Frank. He's played in the front three, he's played as a false nine, and now he's slipping into the midfield. And all due respect, I love Kante, I love Kovacic, but this was kind of nice because having Mason on the pitch also allowed room to bring another creative player in and giving Christian Pulisic more game time or Hakim Ziyech. I thought it was interesting. We did not get the, the win at the end of the day, but interesting to see how this guy can play in, in multiple different positions. It is, and, and that's the, the beauty of having a Mason Mount in your squad uh, he can pretty much play anywhere in those midfield positions or in attack, in Tuchel's attack. Um, and I don't think he did a bad job playing in midfield. He gives Tuchel another option, uh, especially with the games coming up and Kovacic's hamstring injury. Um, but I did feel that we missed Mason Mount's energy uh, in the attack and Nothing against the three guys that played, but it makes you wonder if Mason Mount is slipping into midfield that surely has to open the door for an out-and-out striker to play versus us still going with the false nine. But we went with the false nine and the game ends nil-nil. And again, I think can't blame anyone for this, neither Tuchel or the players, because there was so much stuff going on outside the game and outside the club. Uh, that I think everyone kind of had their mind on what is going to happen next, where does our future lie? And does this game even mean anything for uh, the top four, which obviously it does now, but in the moment we didn't know that. So um, a game that I think we'll not remember for a very long time, but one that may come back to haunt us in that it could have been a win and we could have been sitting in third right now instead of fourth and just a point away from, uh, West Ham United. Yeah, just to quickly wrap up my comments on that thing is it felt like a bit of a missed opportunity to kind of open up a little bit of a gap. But ultimately, with Super League going on and so many different things going on outside, in fact, like we talked about already, the bus was blocked on the way to the Stamford Bridge. So a lot of stuff must have been weighing on the players' minds. But it's something we just march on forward from. Yeah, I agree. We can't We can't read into the game too much. I think it's the overall performance, you don't want to read into it because obviously, I mean, I thought it was starting at 3 p.m. I was out doing an errand. I was like, oh, I'm not going to make the kickoff. And then I looked and I was like, what, 3.15? And then I realized that's because the Chelsea fans had literally prevented the team from getting to the stadium. And I was like, all right, all the more reason to love love these protesters right now. Um, but yeah, I don't think we read into the result too much or the the poor team performance. I think it's just as much of a learning opportunity as any about how we perform against these clubs. I mean, looking at the stats, uh, we did dominate possession as is, as is the norm for a Tuchel side. Um, and we were outshot, but had double the shots on target for uh, against their two though. Obviously I would say their two best shots were better than any of the chances we created almost with, with one being off target, just wide of the post and then one going off the post bouncing back into play and somehow not ending up in our net. Uh, my heart was in my mouth there, but I one one other point um, maybe that should be uh, thought about is something that a guy I've been talking to on Instagram for a while now, a Callum Hudson, a fan page run by someone who I think knows uh, Cho personally uh, brought up the point that every time Hudson, a is on the pitch, we seem to have a little more urgency in the final third. And I think part of that could be down to the fact that we often bring him on when we need that creativity and the players it's late in the game. The players are already mentally maybe uh, thinking, okay, it's time to step up. This is crunch time. But I do think there's something to be said for, for Hudson and interplay. 
um, for the way he he interchanges with Mount, especially at the end. He and Mount were just stringing passes together, trying to find a way through into the Brighton box. Um, and very nearly on a couple occasions, they almost threaded a couple passes together. Um, we were pinging it all over the pitch. We almost, uh, Ziek, I believe it was, almost played uh, Werner in. Um, and then later on, Hudson, Adoy, and Mount were coming close. It was it, it was good to see the tempo raised at the end. And that did give me that littlest bit of hope that right through the end, we might be able to snag a goal. Um, but you just feel like maybe Hudson Adoy deserves another look into the starting 11 or into a halftime sub in a game like this, if it's not going too well. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think he's so direct and he always wants to get into the final third, get a shot away, get a cross in that definitely will help for games like this. And Fortunately for us, I think Tuchel has been performing so well, we haven't questioned too many of his tactics so far. So it's one of those things that remain to be seen. Again, nil-nil, we take it and we move forward. But Rahul, I think for this week, I turned on the TV around 3, 3.30 this afternoon and saw a bullet of a header coming from Sam Kerr. And you want to tell us about the women's game over here? I do. Let's, let's move on to some um, on-field action because... <laughs> This game was the the deserved a lot more build up than it got simply because it was a top of the table clash and it was it's coming to the end of the season, um, but due to everything that we discussed going on, it got it got put behind, uh, but the game didn't disappoint. It ended two two Chelsea women's team versus Man City women's, um, and that means Chelsea continue to sit top of the table two points ahead of Manchester City with two games to go. So like you said, goals from Sam Kerr and uh, Pernal Harder, or Jackie would say it better. Yeah, Penny Ladder. <laughs> there you go. Um, helped the Blues earn a point at the Academy Stadium where we've actually not won a league game, but came very close to doing that this afternoon. Um, and the draw, like I said, keeps us top of the table. Two more games to go. So win and another draw will secure us a back-to-back title, uh, which will be an excellent season for the club and for the squad and Emma Hayes. Um, but this game didn't wasn't without its action and we needed Berger to come in and pull off some good saves. Uh, and she did that. And for me, she was the man of the match. But now we move our, or turn our attentions to the Champions League. Uh, so the women play Bayern Munich in the semifinals. And the first leg uh, is this weekend. Um, and then there'll be a return fixture at the King's Meadow next week. So exciting times and big, big games coming up for the women. So wishing them all the best. Yeah, completely. I, I saw that goal and I was super excited. But I do want to echo what you said. I saw Manchester City putting a lot of pressure towards the end of the game. And Berger came in many, many times to perform a great save to keep the goals out. But yeah, exciting. Looking forward towards the Champions League for the women as well in Bayern Munich. Yeah, I saw, I think I saw one of those saves off a corner kick, uh, palmed right onto the bar while being jostled by a Manchester City player as well. I mean, I, I certainly haven't followed uh, the Chelsea women's team much, but from everything I've seen, they've been performing extremely well. These highlights were very impressive. And I just took a second and glanced at their record. Um, and it's it's honestly quite impressive seeing, I think they've lost two matches this entire season. Um, just grinding out wins. And as you said, they're, they're on track for another great year. That's, it's very exciting knowing that even when the men's team disappoints, there is, there is that, uh, there is that extra bit of happiness that we can gain from, from the women's performances. And they have been saving the day quite a bit recently with the, um, the men's team disappointing. Uh, They come through every weekend with goals and with wins and, uh, hoping that they cap that off with the title. So we can keep, you know, giving this team as much praise as we need to because they deserve it. But now it's time to talk about the Premier League preview with West Ham versus Chelsea. And it's fifth place versus fourth place. And before we dive into it, when I say that this is a nail-biter, West Ham and Chelsea are both sitting with 55 points. So this technically, you could call it a six-pointer as we do in, in football. So, Raul, why don't you take us through some of the initial preview here? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this game, but I'm also nervous because West Ham seemed to just come out of the blocks and score three goals. 
and then let the other team come back in. So uh, their last five results, they lost against Newcastle 3-2. They won against Leicester 3-2. They won against Wolves 3-2. And then they drew against Arsenal 3-3. In this game, they went up 3-0 and then conceded three goals. So they seem to have an issue with um, not being able to manage a game and on the other side, Chelsea seemed to manage a game very well. So a draw against Brighton was our last result. We won against Palace. A kind of a surprise shock and loss against West Brom. But Leeds, we drew against. And Everton, we won against. So those are our last five. And I'm very excited to see this game because it's Chelsea's defense against West Ham and Lingardino coming in against us. And it's just going to be either a lot of goals or just a one nil win for, for either side. Yeah. I think either way, I think if there are a lot of goals, it'll be beautiful. I, I think, I hope. Um, and certainly I, I saw a couple people. I, I can't even begin uh, to describe it, but a couple people slandering Polisic after he was uh, after our, our goal is draw against Brighton. I mean, he tried his best. He was trying to create things. He came close on a couple occasions, I certainly hope he retains his starting spot because I think this could be a, a battle for the ages between uh, post-lockdown or, or post-season Pulisic and West Ham Lingard. These are two powerhouse players in the their 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 final forms, their final evolutions, uh, and I, I I would love to see that that battle. I think it could absolutely it could be a goal fest. But even if it is a, a tighter game, I think the tactical side will be interesting to watch. Um, and this is, uh, it's one that maybe is a, it's more, it's more fun to watch if you're not a supporter of either club, because then you can just fully enjoy the game. Um, but as a supporter, I I'd say the base enjoyment, the emotional connection, I'm going to be, I mean, they say, I guess, whatever that you, you're, you're kicking every ball with the players on the pitch because, you're sitting there and just praying the entire time, um, just just waiting for your players to do something. I think we're all going to be very invested in this match, and I may, maybe I need to secure a more reliable stream because I I, I certainly couldn't handle a, a fast break going one team or the other's way, and then my um, not quite legal streaming service buffering at that point in time. Definitely need to find a good stream for this game because it could be an explosive game. Just to run through the starting lineup, I think I'm, I, I don't know what to predict with goalkeeper, but just because Mendy has been our number one for a long time, I'm going to go back to Mendy being the number one. If Kepa starts again, credit to the lad. I think he deserves it. I would not be surprised. It's just an interesting conversation we may need to have in the next podcast. But Mendy in goal, I think potentially we'll see Aspilicueta return with maybe Thiago Silva getting run in again. I don't know. Rudiger seems to be a staple in that left center back position, so he should start. Maybe calls for Callum Hudson-Odoi at right wing back, like Alex has been talking about. Jorginho, again, I think, again, guys, I think he's been good. He deserves praise in the last week, couple of weeks here, where he's just performed and put in the effort. If Kovacic is fit and can handle it, I think he'll come back in. If not, then Kante needs to come back in. I think we'll see the return of Chilwell just because of the pace of West Ham and, and their front line. And then the front three is always a toss-up with Tuchel, but... Like Alex has said, I think Christian Pulisic needs to retain his position and keep going. He's showing us his fitness. He's showing us his energy levels. And then we may see the return of the German duo again with Timo Werner and Kai Havertz. It's a strong 11. And I was actually just looking up the formation West Ham played in their last game. And it was actually a 3-4-1-2 so it could have been Moyes trying to test out something new and matching Chelsea in what they play. And in fact, he was at the Brighton game uh, watching on and, and taking notes. And so um, he's definitely going to set up and put his team out there to make it difficult for us. Uh, but I think with the team that you've chosen, and I think Kovacic might not make it, so Conte will come in, which is a little bit concerning because we then have Real Madrid. Uh, so Conte's minutes will have to be managed, but Jorginho Conte have been good, like you said. And in fact, uh, on the last episode, Alex and I both went for Jorginho as our man of the match. Um, so he has been good. And I think that team should get the business done. Yeah, certainly Jorginho has been great lately, proving a lot of doubters wrong. And even in this 
horrendous draw that, well, I mean, the game itself wasn't horrendous. It was, it was just not a fun one to watch particularly, but there had been clips doing the rounds on the internet of one of Jorginho's uh, particularly nice moves where he weaves in between a couple of Brighton players in the midfield comes out with the ball. Um, he's been great. And I think I agree. I agree that if, if these players go out and play like we know they can, they're going to get the job done, but <laughs> Chelsea never make it easy. Do they? We never do. It's a bit of a London derby here too. So you could get, it could get fiery. Rahul, you want to talk about Stuart Pierce and Kevin Nolan? Yeah, I just want to touch on, I know there are rivals. I know we're facing them. We're in a race for the top four, but you've got to give credit to David Moyes, Kevin Nolan, and Stuart Pierce, who've been uh, handling things in the behind the scenes for West Ham. And yes, Moyes is the manager, but you always see on the sideline, Kevin, Lo- Kevin Nolan and Stuart Pierce heavily involved in conversation with him. And I think having those two in his backroom staff has done him well, especially this season, uh, because you can see that they were almost relegated last season or, or towards the bottom end of the table. And this season's been the complete opposite. They're flying, they're doing well, they're winning games, and they're doing that without an out-and-out striker. Uh, Mikhail Antonio is their only striker who's been injured, and they in fact sold Holler in the January window and didn't replace him. Lingard did come in, yes, but um, everything that they're doing is very, very commendable. And it hurts me to say it because they're rivals and, um, you know, we're trying to face off in the top four fight, but you've got to give them credit. And that's why I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah. And, and rivalries aside, West Ham are a club with a lot of history. In fact, they have a lot of Chelsea links with some amazing players that have played between both clubs. The likes of Frank Lampard comes to mind Joe Cole, a few notable players outside that have gone on to big, big clubs in Rio Ferdinand. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. That might be an interesting segment for next time, but credit is due where credit is due. We always say that on this podcast, West Ham are punching a little bit above their weight, but it's not like they haven't earned it and worked hard for it. So I think it's going to be a big game and it's going to be something that, like I said, a six pointer and a nail biter, but Alex, maybe we can get a prediction from you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I forget. I I forget exactly what I said. Uh, there was one time I made a, a sort, of, sort of outlandish prediction. I think it was the City game, the City game, that I thought we could get a few goals. And we could have had a couple more. But I think um, I I think sort of as Rahul said earlier, this could be this could be one of two things. You could have the classic, and maybe at this point there's an eighty percent chance it is the classic uh, Tuchel tactic fest where it's nil nil for a good part of the game and then um hopefully in my uh opinion uh chelsea will make their mark uh begin to dominate begin to run the game um and grab a goal or two so i could see this being a clean two nil win for the blues if we if we approach the game plan correctly however as we've seen west ham has a a strategy or well a tendency to bang goals early and then get leaky at the back themselves. So if West Ham come out and, and nab an early goal, we could see a completely different game. But I'm I'm going to go with a 2-0, assuming Chelsea uh, lives up to the game plan. That's a good scoreline. I'm going to go with a 2-0 as well. I think Tuchel is going to want to pick it up from the, not embarrassment, but the lackluster performance against Brighton. So 2-0 as well. And while I did want a 3 or 4-0 win against Manchester City, I did say that if we had that, you'd have to do the podcast outside. So for your sake, I'm glad we did get that. So Rahul, uh, prediction from you, sir? I'm going to go for a 1-0 to Chelsea. Um, and I think that's mainly because Tuchel's going to keep it tight and hope to nick it on the other side. And West Ham are missing some players. I believe Dawson, who got a red card in their last game, will be out. And I think Cresswell and Masuaku, who play their wingbacks, may be out as well. So West Ham may not be at full strength. And I think that may factor into what we do and eventually nick the game 1-0. Yeah, and 1-0 again, fair. Like I said, as long as we keep winning games and go forward, again, repeating myself, it's a six-pointer. I think it's a big one. Just a quick question for both of you guys before we move off of this is, should we win this game, do we then feel confident that we're going to finish in the top four? Alex? 
I mean, I have always, it's maybe blind faith, but I have always felt that we will finish in the top four, especially, I mean, I guess, I guess recent results such as failing to capitalize on that Brighton opportunity um, could suggest otherwise, but it, it's a little like Spurs at the top of the Premier League table, seeing Leicester above us. You feel like in general, Leicester don't quite have the fortitude to finish out a season that strong um, when we saw them. And I mean, they, for example, Leicester, yeah, we, so we could, we could have pulled into third place. Um, we failed to capitalize on our opportunities. So maybe we've let them off the hook, but the opportunities were there. And so certainly prior to the Brighton match, I have always felt um, that we were going to get the top four because I thought Leicester were going to have a few of these little slip-ups. I didn't think they'd quite have the consistency um, or, or hard-drilled defense that Tuchel and this Chelsea side have shown. Um, and I still, you know, for whatever reason, I'm I'm pretty confident. I think we're going to, again, I don't think it'll be easy. I think it'll be sort of like last uh, last year when we had, I think it was our final game against Wolves, if I remember correctly. Um, and it was a 2-0 win, Mason Mount with a beautiful free kick, um, sealed it for us, uh, if I'm if I'm not misremembering, but, but it was, you know, Chelsea never make it easy, but I, I have a feeling we'll grind out these results. Fair enough. Rahul? I, I, um, I want to say I think we'll make it, but I want to be a little more certain about it. So, yes, we will make it. Uh, but this game represents a great opportunity for us to open up a slight gap because after this, we have Fulham, which, yes, on paper is a good game, but we lost to West Brom, so you never know what happens. And then we have Manchester City, Arsenal, Leicester, and Villa. So those are some very tough fixtures. And we saw what Villa did to Man City today. It's not going to be an easy game to play at the end of the season. So that's why I think if we want to qualify for the top four, this game on the weekend is very, very, very crucial to doing that. And a win is even more crucial. Uh, So if we win this weekend, yes, we make it. All right. So I think I'm in the same boat as you, gentlemen. I think we do make the top four. Now, there's a couple more fixtures that are coming up this weekend. We'll get just a couple of words from both of you guys before we wrap up the podcast. And that's Leeds versus Manchester United. So, Rahul, why don't you go first on that one? Thoughts on it? Yeah, another away fixture for Manchester United, and they're undefeated for over a year now. I've lost count of how many games it is. But Leeds have been very good recently. They beat Man City. They drew against Liverpool. They drew against Chelsea, actually, too. So they won't make it easy, but I feel like Manchester United find a way to win these games. And I think that will happen again and they'll continue to keep the pressure on city, even if it's just for a few more weeks. Agreed. Alex. Yeah, I think I agree. I think United are going to take this one, Um, but Leeds have the capability to give anyone a game. We've seen that throughout this season. So I'm hoping for an exciting one, but it's got to be United taking it for me, especially, um, you know, I think they have the most, the most, wins and points from losing positions uh, by far in the premier league i was seeing i believe I, I saw a stat that said something like they've won nine games from losing positions um I, I might be wrong there but i know certainly there is that cliche of them being as i call them second half fc uh or whatever <laughs> I, I i forget i'm there's some beautiful wording on some of the memes you'll see about uh, Ole at every halftime just tells the players to go out there and enjoy themselves. And then they just somehow go out and nick a goal in the 97th minute or something. But it's a little more tolerable when they're not winning the league in that fashion. I certainly get frustrated when when teams uh, somehow squeak results out and, and end up winning the league. But, you know, I think it's, it is what it is. And right now I'm not too jealous of Manchester United because they're not directly ruining our our top four hopes or anything i I also think manchester united will find a way to grind out the result it won't be easy so maybe like a one nail or something like that and and you you want that because you've got cavani and greenwood in your friends that's also true i didn't want to just slide that in there but thanks for throwing me on blast over there the next one is Mikel arteta actually welcomes his old club everton to arsenal so arsenal versus everton 
Rahul, since you were so eager to throw me under the bus with fantasy, <laughs> why don't you go first? Yeah, I, listen, if Everton have any chance of a top four or even a European finish, they've got to win this game because they sit four points off of Liverpool with a game in hand. So if they win this game, they go point behind Liverpool. Um, and for Carlo Ancelotti and his squad, getting into Europa League would be quite an achievement. So I think that's the goal. And I think Everton should win it. But, you know, Arsenal show up whenever they want to. Um, so it may just end up being a 1-1. Yeah, I think um, Everton, are there. they haven't won in six. But they've got the quality to win a game against an Arsenal side that's been quite inconsistent this season. But I, I, I feel like I, I never want to predict things going as, as I would love them to go. So I'm, well, maybe that's a little too much bias leaking into in there in that I would love to see Arsenal have a, a bit of an embarrassment, but you know what? I think Arsenal pull off the victory one nil or two nil. Maybe they tend to score goals in, in groups. Yeah, I'm going to go for a 2-1 and, and Alex, something and Rahul and I have learned on this podcast is whenever we say a team is inconsistent, next week they just come up and end up having a blinder. So hopefully Arsenal don't come back with a 5-6-0 win, but I think it'll be a 2-1 as well. So next one I want to talk about is Liverpool versus Newcastle. And guys, Newcastle have been pretty decent as of late and actually are working themselves a little bit further and further every day from the relegation zone. Two wins on the bounce, but they're playing the mighty Reds. So Rahul, you first. Yeah, I, I want to preview this game solely because Liverpool are uh, top four rivals, but I think they get this win and they have nothing else to play for this season apart from getting into the top four. So he's going to put out his strongest squad. And um, even though Newcastle have been doing well, I think this may be too much for them to handle. Right. Alex. Yeah, they, um, I mean, Newcastle, they got the win against West Ham but as we've discussed, West Ham have a shaky defense, uh, especially when they go up in a match. And um, it, it was also the, I think it was Dawson, did we say, who had the red card, I think 36th minute, as I, as I saw. So if you're playing two-thirds of the game on 10 men, um, you would think that most Premier League clubs against a non-top six big six side should probably be able to come away with a win against a 10 man side for, for an hour. Um, and, you know, credit to Newcastle, they got the job done, but I don't think they're getting at a result against Liverpool. I think Liverpool win two, three nil. Okay. Yeah. I think that Liverpool win two. I don't know if it's going to be two or three nil, maybe just a one nil win. They keep chugging along, trying to get to that top four sport spot. Okay, gents, the last one we want to talk about is the Leicester versus Crystal Palace. And Rahul? Yeah, again, a top four rival. And if Liverpool win their game just before I get into Leicester, they would jump ahead of us if we drop points. So, again, very crucial for us to get a win this weekend. Uh, With Leicester, they play Palace. I mean, from what we saw of Palace, this should be a Leicester win. Uh, But you never know with Palace and... They could get a goal, but I still see Leicester getting at least two, so two-one. Yeah, I um, and I think I think today actually, technically, by by the time uh, Leicester are playing West Brom, so that'll be an interesting one to see where they stand as this Palace game comes in, because currently they have a game in hand on us. We failed to 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 be Brighton, um, but if even if uh, West Brom can pull out a not even the full Chelsea performance and, and slap them up. But if West Brom can even just hold them to one point, that would uh, keep us within touching distance of Leicester. And that would mean that if we beat West Ham, uh, we still absolutely have a chance of finishing above them um, if Leicester drop off. So I would love to see Palace get a result. But after, after seeing how Polisic and the boys carved them up, I think it's probably a Leicester win uh, in that game. But I, I'm, I'm putting a little more of my faith in West Brom to, to maybe hold them to a point that uh, they won't be quite out of reach. In my, in my agreement with you guys, I do think Leicester will win. But in my diluted fantasy, I'm hoping that Palace will get the win here. So I'm going to go with a Palace win just to mix it up a little bit and see what happens there. Bold result, my friend. Uh, But that wraps it up, guys. Thank you very much for listening. 
uh, it was a fun episode. It was good to have Jackie back. And uh, we will be back later this week to do a West Ham review and a Real Madrid preview, the big one. Uh, but until then, please continue to subscribe, like, and follow us. Uh, it's at the Premier Chels, Apple, Spotify, Google, Instagram. And on Twitter, it's at the it's at Premier Chels. We had a slight issue. Um, neither Alex or myself have got ourselves in trouble with David Luiz or John Terry, but Twitter has taken our account down. So we have a new account. It's at Premier Chels on Twitter. So please follow us. And also follow Alex. It's at Pulisic FC22. Uh, but until then, stay safe and up the chels.